Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And I just was like, I want, I need to do exactly what I want to do and like, and really focus on producing stuff that I'll own because the difference of between doing a poster for a hundred bucks and doing a poster and owning it into perpetuity is, is like different. The paycheck is different. And so sure. if you're making work that's good enough to make someone else money, you can make work that's good enough to make you money. Relic Blade is an indie skirmish miniature game that brings a fantasy world to life at the table. I sit down with Sean of Metal King Studios and dig into how he became the one-man show behind the game. The setting, the rules, the art, the sculpting, everything and all of it done by Sean. Make sure you stick around until the end to hear where he sees the future of miniature gaming. This episode is made possible by the generosity of the Third Floor Wars patrons. Thanks goes out to William Muscle, Robert Sabbath, Justin Whitman, John Snowberger, Matt Quacker, Zagrave, and Nick Louie for being the most recent Floorhead supporters. Okay, sit back, relax, and enjoy my talk with Sean. Do you love to unplug and play games around the table? Greetings, friends and floorheads, to Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you love tabletop gaming, you are in the right place. Listen as Craig delivers in-depth discussions and interviews with game designers, creators, insiders, and experts. Learn from the people making and playing the role-playing, miniature, and board games you love. My friends, Craig here. Today, we're talking to Sean Sutter of Metal King Studio. Sean is most known for his work on Relic Blade. Relic Blade is a fantasy skirmish miniature game based on an expanding setting of swords, sorcery, and high adventure. Sean, welcome to the third floor. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So we've got a lot of talk, a lot to talk about because you're a very busy person. But before we talk about what's keeping you busy, I do want to find out when you learned that you could paint models and roll dice and push them around. And how did you discover tabletop gaming? Uh, well, my brother is older than me. He's nine years older than me. And he was into D&D and uh uh, pen and paper RPGs and stuff. And so like looking up to him, I was like really stoked about, about the idea of playing those games. Yeah. But then, um, I think I also discovered that like miniatures existed. I think we went into the game store. I was like waiting for him to get out of a game and I saw some like little space orcs or like guys with like little banners with stickers on them. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like that totally blew my mind. And so my brother wasn't into it, but like, that was it for me. That was, <laughs> that was the yeah, hook. <laughs> that's all. Yeah. I was done. 
It is funny how that is and how it just rings sometimes because I I remember that and it was it was the old and it had to have been Citadel the old D and D miniatures the metal skeletons like I can tell you the hobby store how old I was when I saw a rack of them mm-hmm. and like you it was just like my God there's a whole world I didn't even know existed yeah. before <laughs> yeah I mean I've always loved toys and so the idea of being able to like customize them and build armies and play games with them was really. Perfect. So you spend time idolizing your big brother. He gets to play these games. You see these models in the in the hobby store. Do you remember like your first game or what was the first game? Yeah, or the first I, time? it was actually yeah. a long time before I was able to like get into the hobby because it's sort of expensive. Yeah, for a, a kid. little bit. <laughs> um, and I think it was two thousand. Oh wow! I got um, I got the six edition Warhammer fantasy box set. And that like, that was really cool. I mean, it probably took me, I don't know, 10 years to finish painting that set, but (laughs) there's a lot of models in that box. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, I, I collected tons of stuff, but, uh, but yeah, that was my like big introduction into like really playing and building armies and and was that just uh, that was it? You were in, uh, and did you stay with it all for the way from two thousand? Or yeah, uh, I think so. Uh, really consistently playing Warhammer or playing, and then playing forty k with a friend who is like really into it, and um, and then later getting into War Machine. Nice. And and then War Machine sort of. You know, it's easy. Games Workshop produces really high quality stuff and they produce a ton of it. And so there's more than enough for Games Workshop to be your hobby. (laughs) Um, But it was when I started playing War Machine that I like had kind of cracked open that shell and was like, oh, my gosh, there's like so much more. Yeah. And they're fun and really good and very and very different. They aren't all just like weapon skill, ballistic skill. Yeah. four pluses like it there's a lot there so uh that that opened my eyes and then so then i played a ton of um x-wing and nice war machine and uh got into you know a bunch of just and then got really more into the indie stuff right and digging into that so but but it sounds like private press was was the uh the alice's door that opened up and then you just went yeah. through huh yeah uh that i think I mean, there's, it's hard to like pinpoint every step, but I think it really was Privateer Press where I was like, oh, wow, like these games can be really, really fun. Like not just (laughs) cool models and not just like fun enough, but like they can be like a real game. And so then that kind of (laughs) blew my mind. You and I are simpatico because I, I, and and I, I, some of my listeners are 40K fans and and I came from 40K and I said more than, more than once. And this is not a knock. I mean, trust me, I've spent your share of money and my share of money on, on, GW products, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're good. They're taken care of as far as money I've spent. But um, I, I have a similar statement with, like with Guild Ball. Guild Ball was my first non-GW game. And I had the same reaction where it was just like, oh, wow, like 
Like the, these rules are good. Like you and can like have models and have good rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not a knock on what, you know, GW does because I can, you know, we can sit here and talk about the great things that they do and we start with the models, but I know exactly what you're saying. Now you mentioned that your brother played uh, RPGs and as we mm-hmm. as we get into Relic Blade, um there is an aspect of that in Relic Blade. Are, do you also do role playing still? Yeah, I I do when I can and actually with my brother we're, nice. we're both adults, so the age difference doesn't matter anymore. Uh, but he doesn't. Pick yeah, there's on your no character. way he was going to have like a nine-year-old sitting in on his D and D sessions when he's yeah. in high school. Um, but uh, I, I do. I play role-playing games. I played a whole bunch of Fifth Edition when it first came out. Yeah, and that was sort of when I was like really solidifying my like goal for relic blade was like to try and capture the D D party and the uh the way you have like a small party of characters and their right. skills interact and and the way a deadly encounter feels and how there's more options in how it goes rather than it being specifically just a a, a tactical battle just a skirmish you know game I mean? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool. So, guys, uh, the Insider Insights series is my opportunity to sit down with designers, developers, artists, writers and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration and the methods for crafting their creations. You're about to get wowed with everything that Sean does. So let's take a quick break and let's talk about the beginnings of Relic Blade. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, friends. And welcome to the Writer's Room, where you can find all sorts of adventures, antics, and escapades for the 7th C TTRPG. I'm Zoe Jackson. I'm Evan Ackley. And I am Patrick Keefe. And we are here to tell you the stories of 7th C. If you enjoy actual play podcasts featuring adventure, drama, and swashbuckling heroism using music and dynamic sound effects, then you've come to the right place. Not only do we bring you stories from our 7th C gameplay, we also discuss the mechanics of the game in special episodes called Notes with the Narrator. To learn more, our Linktree link will be in the bio, and that will help you find us on your favorite podcatcher, as well as support us through our many different platforms. Won't you join us? So, Sean, now that we've got kind of your origin story, um, let's talk about, and we touched on it a little bit in the last segment, where was the earliest ripples of, I don't want to just play and try different games, but you started, I would assume, tinkering at some point, and Mm -hmm. maybe that's where the beginning, where did Relic Bade, where was it first, the first seed planted? Well, all right, so I think the earliest seed was, was just the, like, RPG tabletop pen and paper mentality where we're pretty much like really young we learned me and my friends learned that there was a thing called tabletop rpgs yep and that 
you resolved things with dice. Like that, that's all we <laughs> needed to know. And we started like the entire hobby. <laughs> yeah, we started writing games. We started running really? adventures. No rule sets. No books. We, you know, and like our Christian parents were like, "No, you can't have that book." And so we just like we just go for it, you know. And we'd base it on whatever we were reading at the time, or whatever stories we liked, or whatever cartoons we liked, and we'd just play, knowing archetypes and knowing. Yep like that dice represent chance and so you can like solve it and so i think that that connects to the like the deepest dna of just being like knowing i could do it on my right. own just like that i didn't really need permission um but then it's also a long journey uh, uh, of being an artist working in popular arts and going to college and getting a degree and studying sculpture and studying all that stuff like so so there's a lot to it you know the journey but i think if i go all the way back it's just like i think of us sitting down and being like all right you enter that room and it's a treasure vault and like you can get a new sword and this well, one's plus two, like yeah. it, and nothing mattered. And we didn't base it on anything other than like that are that we had read The Hobbit, you know? That's awesome. So. That's awesome. So you mentioned going to school. You went, went to school for graphic design? Uh, painting, yeah. Oh, for painting? Yeah, a, no yeah. kidding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have and, a, a bachelor's of fine art. <laughs> oh, wow. Look at you fancy pants. I'm impressed. <laughs> so when you were studying that, was... Was the hobby and the and the artistic aspect of the hobby always in the back of your mind, or was that or was that regulated for you? So as you pursued your degrees, you pursued your artistic endeavors. Did it ever meld w- with tabletop gaming, or was they two separate things? Early on, I I like I'd learned about um, Merck's minis and how it was like a small team of guys here in the U.S. making it. Um, and so I was like, oh, I could be the illustrator and like creative person and find a friend that would do that and this and, and hire a sculptor. And I like kind of thought it would be possible. Um, but then yeah, I'm, looking back, it's all, it's all very naive, but like you just need to like you just need to start somewhere. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then that was when I realized that like, oh, I sculpted a couple models and I was like, there's these are not good enough. And like I did some drawings and I was like, there's no way this isn't good enough, you know. (laughs) And I think that's an important step for an artist is like, is it good enough for me to pay myself what I think I should be getting paid to do this? Like, would I pay myself $2,000 for this art because I can make more than $2,000 by owning it? Like, so you start thinking about that stuff. And that was when I shifted gears and went back to school and, and got my degree because I was like, oh, I'm not good enough. Like, I can, there's something I can do about that. That was about 10 years ago now. So it sounds like, and correct me if I misunderstood this, it sounds like that your your love of designing four tabletop miniatures drove you back to the school and drove you to mm-hmm. study this. Does that sound right? Yeah, but the school I went to didn't have any popular art program. It was all fine art. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I... I was into it, like I got interested in it, and I, I did uh, gallery work and landscape painting and sold paintings, and I also did like web design and user experience design and all that like stuff that seemed more commercially viable. But uh, then it was back; it was in 2015 when I was like, "All right, I'm." I was drawing comics. I was designing T-shirts. I was making posters for local museums. I was doing everything right. 
And, uh, and I just was like, I want, I need to do exactly what I want to do and like, and really focus on producing stuff that I'll own because the difference of between doing a poster for a hundred bucks and doing a poster and owning it into perpetuity is, is like different. The paycheck is different. And so if you're making work, that's good enough to make someone else money, you can make work that's good enough to make you money. So anyways, it's, it's complicated, but basically like in 2015, I stopped taking freelance and started doing full time for relic blade. And, uh, and I taught myself ZBrush. I started doing, I did all, I do all the illustration game design, uh, everything for it. Well, you're, so. you're, ru- you're ruining my, my life. Oh, I was sorry. Slipping yeah. in here. The fact that you'd like literally do everything. <laughs> I think that the listeners are starting to figure that out, Sean. Um, so you, so self, self-taught sculptor then. Yeah. Yeah. I learned on, um, the pixel. I use ZBrush. Uh, and so that really works well for me because it's, um, it's very artist friendly. Um, but you don't have to be like a materials master, like real sculptors are, they're like materials people, like the classes in sculpture. I, I don't took. know if I understand what that means. All right. So like uh, I took several sculpture classes in college and they were all about how to work with bronze or how to work Got with it. wax or how to like what types of glue to use, you know, like because you have to know like what kind of epoxy will react with what kind of thing and what kind of polish. So it's all about like real tactile materials and like right. and I'm not an expert of that. And, you know, my friends who are really good traditional sculptors do know how much of what to mix with their green stuff and what type of armatures and what type of metals and what type of everything, you know, and like that serves them. But I don't I don't have that and I don't have the like passion for that. And so ZBrush really works well for me because it's just straight up my imagination. I'm just forming pixels and squishing them into shape. Um, So anyways, technology is really helped me be able to do it. And I learned it all just through the Pixelogic website. So just um, the free tutorials are enough for me and YouTube. And I mean, obviously you've produced miniatures and sold miniatures, so you figured mm-hmm. it out. How how frustrating was that process to get from when you started messing around with ZBrush to the point where you felt you could you could produce a miniature that somebody would buy? Yeah, I there was probably a year gap of wow. like learning before before it was like good enough to like actually have it stay together as a figure, you know, like pieces too thin, pieces too thick, proportions wrong, scale wrong. Like, you know, there's a lot of steps. And, uh, and so that was, that was a process. And I, and I still am learning as I go, like, you know, I'll, I'll get a new figure and be like, Oh, that, you know, the head's a little too big or, or that sword's a too thin or, you know, anyways, there's, there's always, and then also making sure that it can get cast correctly. There's, there's so much, right? So but, much. Um, but thankfully, you know, uh, the community for tabletop miniatures isn't terribly big. And, uh, and once you get plugged into it, like people are friendly and like you can ask questions. That was the biggest step for me was I taught myself a bit, but then I went to, um, it, it was actually a war machine convention, lock and load. They're like privateer press is like, uh, name yeah. convention um and i just i went that weekend and i only hung out with the sculptors interesting and and like so those guys really really helped me um and that was a big 
that was a big turning point for me was just being able to be with those guys. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, so I'm understanding things now from a having the skill sets to be able to produce models that people would be interested in and be willing to pay for to have the artistic ability to design, uh, you know, that and to illustrate all of this. Where was the beginnings of the game itself, though? Did, did that come after or before? So I'm trying to get a sense of cart and horse here. Yeah, I think, um, well, I am interested in lots of things, you know, and so it makes sense. Like, I like writing, I like drawing, I like sculpting, I like all that stuff. And and it makes it so that I can, if I'm doing a lot of different things, I don't get bored with any one particular thing. That's nice. Uh, so I knew that if I was going to sculpt something and try and sell it, that I could be making just like D and D models and try and sell them. Yep. Um, but for me, I just never buy anything that doesn't have like one or two reasons to get it. You know, like if I'm, you know, just to pull a random example, maybe, uh, that, that new, uh, Warhammer quest box that came out, that was like a big deal, you know, I can justify it by saying, well, maybe I'll play that Warhammer Quest game, but also it's skeletons and zombies and like vampires. Like uh, you can definitely use it in, you know, 10 different games. Yep. And so it suddenly you're like, oh, okay, for sure. It, it va- validates itself. Right. So if you could get your hands on it, then you would, you would be able to buy it. But um, so I felt that way about my sculpts. Like I needed to make more reasons. And there was a game inside me that I would like really it was dying to play. And I was like, you know, I, I don't need to be waiting for someone else to make what I want to play because yeah. because a like no one else has the exact same taste as me. But there are lots of people that have similar enough tastes that they'll like what I make. So anyways, it's a matter of taste. It's a matter of creative license of just like that good old fashioned like you need a die. And then that's that's all you need to be able to play a tabletop game. Yeah. So. So that's sort of what happened is I sculpted enough models that I was like, you know, I've got ideas of a combat system. I've got ideas. And so just building it one step at a time. Very, very interesting. (laughs) So what is um, do you remember vaguely the first time you sat down with another human being and showed them the earliest version of Relic Blade? Yeah, uh, I had uh, some friends over and we sat up and, and, and played and they liked it enough, you know. Uh, I think I had uh, other versions of different games that, like, I had ported the mechanic, messing around, figuring out the mechanics. And I remember having a friend over, and he just, like, you know, was able to exploit the weaknesses in the system. <laughs> and then that got my brain really working. Yeah. But, yeah, it's funny. Playtesting is tough because, like, uh, some... I'll ju- I'll look. I'll, I'm sure I look grumpy the whole time, but it's because I'm like really, really paying attention to like every little detail, you know. And it's like yeah. high tense because I'm like doing all this like problem solving with every little thing that happens. So, uh, yeah, I do remember what it was like. And uh, and well, probably the craziest thing though was when I had written the rule book and had written all the and pr- printed the cards and wrote the rule book and sculpted the figures and then i sent them to um ash barker of gorilla yep. miniatures games Ash's on youtube been on the show. yep and 
And he learned the game by reading what I wrote. Like, I didn't get to tell him how to play, right? Right. And so that was like a big moment where I was like, all right, this is how it exists Yeah. in the wild. Like, I, it's not me saying, oh, well, it's actually supposed to be like this. Like, It's a really good point, that, actually. So. Yeah. So that was probably more of a, like, real crisis point of just being like, all right, like sink or swim, you got it. All right, Relic Blade do exist. Well, and Ash is a fan. I mean, he, you see a lot of Relic Blade on his channel, so you obviously made an impression. Um, and he's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify as him as somebody that's easy to impress. I mean, he's played a few games, from my understanding, <laughs> <laughs> like all of them. Yeah, yeah, and it's true. You know, there are a lot of games that you know you can you can enjoy. A couple times. Yeah. And then there are other games that like you actually want to come back to. And and he like bless his heart. He comes back to Relic Blade. Like he that's does. awesome. And like because because he could he has access to every game. You know? Yeah. Well, that's exactly my point. Right. Like <laughs> yeah. it, it would have been very easy for him, Sean, to have read the rules, played it done a video or two on it, said great things about it, and then moved on. But that is not what he did, um, which I think is, is a credit to you. I'd be curious, though, as you're going through these iterations, right, you're going through the playtesting before you hand it over to, to, to Ash or anybody else at a kind of final stage thing. Um, what were some of the bigger steps in that iteration process? Were there any big aha moments or big changes that you made that really, really pushed things forward? Yeah, well, it was... Uh, I wish I knew exactly like the exact time frame, right? But it was probably diary real quick. I'm sure you wrote it. Down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <I'm kidding>. right. <laughs> uh, no, it was it was like it was it was pretty quick turnaround, um, but like like three months probably from wow. from like really starting to write it to actually having a printed copy. Uh, Holy cow, Sean! Yeah, I mean, but it was like sleepless nights like every little detail yeah yeah lots of lots of lots of problem solving and my game design process is definitely uh asking and answering questions like what happens if this happens like oh i'll figure that out and like you know i was doing game design yesterday and like i was just starting with these questions like what's the point like what does this even offer yeah that is worth its salt you know like so yeah yeah so answering questions and then i also like to start with like a thesis statement and so that was a big part of relic blade was making sure that any new content i wrote like comes back to that original thesis statement of like making sure i'm not making things too complicated you know actions need to be smooth and intuitive so what's the thesis statement oh where's i don't know where it's written down exactly word for word what, or you can paraphrase but, it uh, but yeah it's essentially just to make sure that the game is like really easy to learn but uh -huh. that it's all has um depth in choice so it's it's not uh how to play that's complicated it's how you will play like what choices you'll make will be complicated so Yep, that's great. That's great. That's I, don't, I don't want people to be like, how do you swing a sword? Like, you swing it. Like, come on. <laughs> but, like, whether it's worth swinging the sword or trying right. to grab the treasure or trying to, like, heal your friend, you know, and and what thing you're going to focus on. It's, and so I try to really make sure there's lots and lots of important hard choices that don't take long to make. Because, like, uh, that's something that's tough in war games is when your opponent is like... Yeah. 
two hours into their turn and you're like, I'm going to bed. So, <laughs> so I'd be curious, Sean, having that mantra in your in your head, right? This thesis statement in the head that's, that's the overarching design goal, sounds like, to in a, lo- in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you're going through the playtesting process, is that a is that a center of gravity for you? So as you're hearing feedback, are you matching that feedback to whether you're straying from that? I, I'm curious to know how that whole process works. Yeah, for you. Uh, yeah, for sure. And also like measuring feedback based on taste, right? Like making sure that I'm staying true to like the intention of the game because yeah, I've gotten feedback that was like, oh well, this rule could be more complicated and then it'd be more accurate to what's happening. And I think, oh, that doesn't fit Relic Blade. And then I get other feedback that are like, this rule that you did write is more complicated than anything else in the game. And I'm like, I should, I should have fixed that. I should. <laughs> That's have <fixed> a problem. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, I think it's it's uh, really good, and it's it's nice to have like a place to measure from, right? Uh, rather than rather than having feeling like everything just could be anything yeah it's hard to explain but making sure there are design limitations i guess is what i'm saying that make it make it way more creative than if i could just do anything well, it sounds to me like a, it's a wall you can keep bouncing against, right? So if you have mm-hmm. an idea, you can bounce it up against that and see how it reacts to it and see how yeah. it fits there. So that that's very interesting. Yeah, so and there that, are funny, like, design limitations. Like, uh, all of the characters are on cards, right? And that means that each character has three skills, and they're all listed in this little box. And there's a lot of good information neatly designed in that box, but it also means that, like, a special ability can only have at most five, 10 words that describe what it does. And so that means that, you know, you've maybe opened a D&D book and been like, oh, cool, this this monster has this skill and it's like a paragraph and you're like, (laughs) all right, well, that's cool because there's all this detail of what the acid breath does to people. But in Relic Blade, I just, I need to make sure I distill it down to like what's exciting about acid breath and like how it can be represented in like that tight system rather than rather than having new like oh well assign a point and then every turn the wind blows it three inches to the left and <laughs> you know anyways the, you can go down this hole of game design and but it, what, what's interesting to hear that sean is that you have got a physical design constraint that's mm-hmm. helping control you as a rules writer which is interesting yeah. Very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and saying, you know, I'm, and saying, that's it. You know, if, if, I, if, I, if I can't fit it here, then I need to fix it. And I need to make yeah. changes to it until I can. So that's, that's neat. So now you, you feel good about it. You, you, you've got to play tested to the point. You've got rules, rules written that you can send to somebody and they can read it and actually play the game without you looming over them, uh, mm-hmm. telling, telling them what they're doing right or wrong. Uh, what's next from a business standpoint from you? Wh- what do you do now to, to say to the world, hey, I'm, I'm open for business? Or what, what needs to happen before you can say that? I, I got it to market pretty quick and I and at the time you know Kickstarter has is this uh in, it's an interesting thing. Yeah. Uh it there's a lot of projects that are really really like what is good about Kickstarter and there's a lot of projects that are like what is a problem with Kickstarter, you know? And tabletop uh has really been a major player in Kickstarter, yeah. you know, or, or, or vice versa. 
And um, at the time, I felt like, well, I want to be able to do it without Kickstarter because I want to really have it be good enough that it stands on its own. Right. Um, rather than just like the idea of it was good enough that people bought the idea and then whether, and then it was delivered and then they forgot about it, you know? Um, so I released the game without going to Kickstarter and I sold probably like 70 copies, which was awesome for me. <laughs> right. I was like really stoked. And, uh, and it's fun. Cause like, even I just finished my fifth Kickstarter spoiler, I guess I'm moving ahead too fast, <laughs> but like, you know, there are some of the same names, some same people that That's bought that very shot. first, like, like white box with like a, just a word relic blade scrawled on <laughs> it and marker, marker. Yeah, purple crayon <laughs> please play my game <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah those same people still with me so um that's incredible but it was i had, I had a friend eben who I'd, I'd done several comic book projects with and he was like you made it and the fact that you sold 70 copies doesn't mean that the game is like done and so you right. can still go to Kickstarter with what you already made and it's all work that's already done. Go to Kickstarter, see what happens. And so he, you know, we, we were working really, really closely at that time uh, as creative collaborators. And so he helped encourage me and I did my first Kickstarter in 2016. And then I did a second Kickstarter later that year for expansions. And then since then, I've been trying to like run them annually uh, as a way to keep the game fresh and keep things alive. And, and it also, uh, in the description, I think you, you mentioned that it's ever expanding, but right. the way the game is designed is for things to, you can add one character or a faction or whatever, and it all just fits together. That's cool. So you don't have to, the prerequisites aren't as crazy. If you have the rule book and any of the releases, you can play Relic Blade. Right. That's a, it works well. So with the kick, your first Kickstarter, you, you, you're in a situation where you've made the game, you've mm -hmm. already sold 70 copies of, of at this point, and that puts you way ahead um, as far as Kickstarters go compared yeah. to a lot of other miniature games that come out on Kickstarter. From beginning to end that first time, um, one, what was your takeaway from it? When, when you walked away from it, did you say that was successful? I, I think that went better than I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. Like, well, how did that first Kickstarter feel? It was um, like, like mind bendingly stressful. I bet. like uh, yeah that first Kickstarter man. It's funny to look back at how like how sweet and naive I was, but like you know, <laughs> if I would get a backer, I would just be like over the moon. And then when people would drop pledges, oh. I would just be like, what is wrong with me? Why do they hate? Oh, like, I was Sean. like going through breakups, you know, and like every day just being like so stressed, like, am I going to reach the goal? You know, writing emails, writing to blogs, writing, you know, and oh, working bless. so hard. And then now, like I've learned, you can post the Kickstarter, you do what you can beforehand. It's better if it's short because that first Kickstarter was like a month long. And so I was just like tortured Torture for yourself. a month and then then I was like alright two weeks is more than enough like how long do you need to decide if you want something you need to catch everyone with one paycheck 
And so if people get paid nice. every two weeks, just do yep. like a two week span. And then if people get paid the second week of the month, then they can back it. Or if they get paid the first week of the month, they can back it or not. And that's fine. Right. Because like, you know, most things are hobby stuff is more fun as an impulse buy, not as a it is. should I spend my this month's hobby money on back some, in 15 this days. 40 day <laughs> project. <laughs> oh, anyway, so like I've learned a lot, but um. But yeah, it's been wild and the the community's been like really really generous and fun and and um I'm a very I wear my uh, emotions and personality on my sleeve so I'm like very connected to the community and I think people respond to that at least the people that like me like me and that's great. So. There's no question about that Sean because I mean uh, I had heard of your game um but I've never played it. Um but I consistently had listeners saying, "Have you talked to Sean?" Have you talked to Sean? You should go. I would be great if you interviewed Sean. And what's different about that, Sean, is other listeners will say to me, have you talked to the guy that makes this? Have you talked mm. to the guy that makes Gaslands? Have you talked to the, like, but for you, it was, have you talked to Sean? And I'm like, well, I don't know who Sean is. And they're like, oh, <laughs> I'm going to tell you about Sean. And by the way, he makes Relic Blade. So I completely believe what you're saying, that, that you have created a very personal connection to your players that was obvious to me um, when when I you know began to hunt you down. <laughs> yeah, that's a very, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear you say yeah, that. That's yeah, yeah, it was it was it was very, um, very different. Um, in a good way. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's cool. Um, so now let's fast forward. Um, so we you, you do your first Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned what you, what you have your fifth now that you're wrapping up. Or yeah, I, I, I actually just finished shipping the last of it today. Wow. So like it's and that I'll tell you. Does that got to be the I, best feeling? If I thought like if I thought the first Kickstarter was stressful, just wait until you run one during a pandemic. My goodness. Oh my god! <laughs> it was supposed to ship in November. Oh, like for those of you who are listening, it is not November. <laughs> no, no. It, but let's also be honest that I mm -hmm. promised to ship in November, but you ship in May. That's early Kickstarter time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, considering, you know, and there was stuff that was just totally out of my control, yeah. you know, like there's a tin shortage. Like, what am I supposed to do? My figures are metal. Like, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, but I think the key there, because I've had, you know, I, I embarrassingly back a lot of projects um more than i should and um it all comes down to communication right um and you know as long as you as the as a creator saying look you know here's our situation here's what's going on here's what i'm doing about it I, as a consumer i'm fine yeah i'm fine it's when i'm not getting that that yeah, i start you know start getting right. the edge to and that sound doesn't sound like that that's your mo which is good no yeah i mean i tried it's always a, a balance for me because i hate spam like i just hate constant emails you know like mm -hmm. there are certain services that just feel like they need to talk to you every day and it they drives don't. me crazy <laughs> so i try to only do like a kick uh an update like once a month I f but which is probably less than people would like but uh, maybe uh, maybe I should do every two weeks or something or, you know, or have like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe I could do like a live stream one every once a month and also a Kickstarter update another, you know, anyways, there are ways I could try and do it better to communicate better, but I try to keep people up to date. The problem is like a lot this year, it was like, and this month. I had to try and stay busy doing other stuff because there still isn't any resin in the United States. Like, 
So, so, let me give you a quick update. I did my lawn. I painted the house. Yeah. Oh, man. One update where I was like, I went fishing. It was really nice. I've been playing the flute. Like, oh, that's <laughs> amazing. Because there's literally nothing you could do. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's crazy. That's crazy. Well, I mean, but I mean, not to get too I'll just end up going too far ahead. But I've been keeping myself busy. Well, that's so. good. Yeah. That's good. All right, guys. Let's. What we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break, and we've talked about the making of Relic Blade, but we haven't really talked about the game. So we're going to take a break, come back, and learn what the hell Relic Blade is and how do you play it. We'll be right back. This is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content that you're listening to right now for free. That pitch man explains by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we refuse to interrupt your episode of Tabletop Talk with such time-wasting pleas. We pledge never to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month because supporting content creators keeps the content coming. Even if there is a link in the show's description, and there is, we don't ask you to click it and become a patron. We don't waste time rambling about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting episodes without ad breaks like this, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway... Enjoy this episode, knowing Tabletop Talk, despite being supported by its patrons, won't engage in such blatant appeals for support. So now that we understand it, kind of um, the origin story of the game, the reality is, Sean, we really haven't talked about what the game is right now. I know a lot of people listening are familiar with it and have seen it. Uh, I'm sure we've got players of the game, but someone brand new walks, you know, hey, what, is, what the hell is Relic Blade? What's an easy explanation? Yeah, so uh, Relic Blade is like party-based tactical combat. Um, the You have like four to six models per side. Nice. Games last about a half hour. Um, it's huge. it's designed around the like tank DPS healer like party dynamics style of gameplay, and there will be a party of heroes or a party of villains, or you know some mixture of of uh, factions. And there are only two main factions. There's like good guys and bad guys. And so you can create a motley, like a disparate band of adventures. So you can have, you know, it's it's a little bit like Fellowship of the Ring, where you've got uh, guys from all over Middle Earth that come together for this purpose. And so you as a player play as an extra planar being that like can affect fate. So you've got sort of powers as a player. You nice. control your characters. Um, there's a, characters have a neat 
action point system where they've got a certain number of dice they can spend. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can spend a die to move or you can spend dice to perform actions. And when you do it, you roll the die. And so if you spend more time doing it, you can roll two dice and add it together. So it's more likely you'll succeed. And so there's a lot of choices in how you activate your characters, how you try and perform your actions, um, the order that you do things in. So you end up with like lots of really like tightly distilled decision points throughout the game and you activate one character then your opponent activates one character and there's very active scenario play that's um, very you know adventure driven so it's not just uh, combat like you could play a game that's just combat uh, but there's usually some other thing going on that's uh, more pressing than just punching the other player. <laughs> so I'd be curious, Sean, the setting itself is a fantasy, high fantasy setting, it sounds like, with magic and, and monsters and things like that. Yeah. In your mind, is it a generic setting or is there a world of Relic Blade? Well, I try to make sure it's recognizable enough that that people feel like they can enter it with a sense of ownership. Yeah. Um, but... There's also, as the game has grown, there's more and more races and factions that are like closer to my own vision and aesthetic for the world, right? So the, uh, there aren't orcs, but there are pigmen that are sort of like orcs, and there are lizard men, and so there's lots of animal creature people. Um, it's very fun fantasy, kind of nice, uh, not overly cartoony, but cartoony. It's like comic book adventure, you know? So um, it's not grim dark <laughs> in any way. But, There's already uh, a few of those, so that's yeah, good. <laughs> it's very it's very fun and action packed with lots of different uh, character classes and things that would be recognizable should have twenty percent new in them. Nice. So that's sort of the goal is that it's eighty percent an evil cleric. And then 20% makes it this mummy lord with a skull face that has, you know, so it's like a little different and yeah, a little fun. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's I, funny how I really try to, it. Yeah, I try to make sure that people can enter it because part of it is the world, there's no world map of the whole planet. Uh, it So I want people to be able to enter the world of Relic Blade and have a sense of like, yeah, ownership. Like they feel like their character could be in there. Their D and D character could exist. Their world can exist, um, but also there is stuff to explore. There is a, the Temple of Justice or the like Ancient Order of Lone Guard Rangers, and there's stuff to explore and factions that exist. So it's like it's a rooted setting. Yep. But that's open enough that you should be able to have your imagination triggered and explore it on your own yeah very very cool so you know it's a little tough it's much easier when two guys are sitting down at the game store and teaching each other relic blade and explaining the game to them. it's a little tougher on a podcast so um we'll try to back into it so um how do you win the game so if you and i are playing sean mm-hmm. and we finish our game which by by the way 30 minute play time is amazing um yeah like, and it's on a two by two that's board awesome also so you can fit it on like that's great that's great it's great it's great because that alone sets you aside um Mm. uh which is fantastic but um how do we determine whether sean won the game or craig won the game what 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 are the win conditions yeah so it it depends on the scenario okay so so generally you'd start an average army list or whatever uh, would be a hundred points 
and that's like four hero level characters or uh you know more or less depending on whether you're taking companions or like henchmen level dudes or whatever um and then you also have upgrades that change your character so you attach various skills or items or or weapons or potions to your characters and that'll change how they play so we'd build our lists if we were playing campaign we would have purchased those or earned them throughout the campaign and then we would set up the mission which you know would we choose in the book or roll for like one that's generated and uh and there will be victory conditions in there based on what how you claim victory points or what the objective is it's I think, I mean, maybe one is to eliminate your enemy, but like it's almost all activate these magic stones, nice. claim these treasures, destroy that relic, you know, yep. uh, open this door before you get swallowed by this demon, you know, like things like that. Fun stuff. Stuff that's a little bit more interesting than just, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. Yeah. More of an adventure than, yeah. than, uh, but it is, but it's also the, um, to use D&D terms, it's also a deadly level encounter. How so? And so in that the opponent team is really strong and like and so your characters can die in these moments. So it's not just like a low level uh, fighting a couple goblins on the road situation. It's like really a <laughs> crisis uh, point of the adventure. So and I've got a new box set that's coming out that um is really carefully designed to give players like get straight into the campaign feel of a campaign. Nice. uh, The dynamics of a party where there's lots of skills that interact with each other and the characters gain skills and, but, and it takes out a lot of the like, um, you know, paperwork of like listing where who took damage or what kind of, or bookkeeping, I guess is what you'd call it. And it turns it all into card driven. And so anyways, I'm very excited for that. It's very nice. So if you and I, you, you call me up, Sean, and say, hey, Craig, let's play 100 points uh, aside on Relic Blade. I say, great. Um, do I customize my list because I know what you like to play or I know what the scenario is or I just always have these 100 points or what kind of pregame decisions are happening? Yeah, usually usually when I play, I don't know what scenario we're going to play. Okay. Um, but if we were playing a campaign, then we would have a roster of characters and then we'd set a point limit and then you can take that point value from your roster. Um, so you might have several guys, but then you discover that it'll be handy to have a rogue. So you'll choose your rogue and and your sorcerer and your barbarian and take them with you, you know. Um, and then, uh, you know, you can also list build within a faction if you like p- particularly like the lizard men. Yep. Um, or you can build more of a, uh, like, like I said, a fellowship of evil where the, you know, a bunch of different characters, you know, like Skeletor doesn't just all have skeletons. <laughs> He's got the beast man and the fish man and, and so <laughs> the fart, the farts gunkin. <laughs> yep. Um, so that's interesting to me. Um, the fact that my hiring pool, is, it sounds wide, right? As I'm picking, filling those hundred points, how tough is that for you as a designer knowing that that somebody could potentially doesn't have a faction limitation when you introduce a new model you're not balancing it for the faction you got to balance it mm-hmm. for every other freaking model you've made how how challenging is that it's 
it's pretty challenging, but also the game like self balances in a way in that you can you can kill a strong character with a weak character if it's a lucky hit. You know, if you right. roll good on your attack and they roll poor on their defense, they'll they can take damage. So so I've learned what what are really really important stats to not go crazy with but I, <laughs> but in the in general i've i've found a way to make it balanced throughout um and that doesn't mean that there aren't like really strong ways to play you can definitely harass your opponent with some like really wacky builds sure um if you're familiar with gorilla miniature games like owen can definitely find a way to uh to yeah to game the system and <laughs> Put, put way too many goblins on the table or whatever. So. so as I've talked, you know, over the last couple of years, I've talked to a lot of d- different designers. And what I thought was game design before I talked to two dozen designers and now where I am, you know, here, I've learned a lot, though I don't design. Right. Uh, so it's not firsthand, but it's been fascinating for me. One of the things that I have found very interested is had you talked to me three years ago and said, Craig, you know, what's the most important thing in game design? One of the top things I would have listed is balance. I, you Mm -hmm. know, like the game has to be balanced, right? And you hear that all the time from players out in the communities and all the different miniature games. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I start talking to designers and they're like, yeah, yeah, balance is like one of the last things we worry about. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm like, geez, really? That's crazy. And at first... I side-eyed it a little bit, uh, but now I'm fully bought in, right? I've talked to enough people and I've, I've kind of changed the way I think about it. Where does it fit for you, Sean? How, how important is game balance? How much, much time do you spend on that versus things that I didn't even think about, which is, you know, fun. <laughs> and yeah. the fact that you have to design so the game is fun and, and ease of use. And those are other things that I just didn't even think about before. Yeah, I I definitely I want the game to play quick. I don't right. want there to be too much too long. Your opponent's turn shouldn't be very long and your turn shouldn't be long and I want the board to be developing. So so like you're always reacting to what's happening and like playing Relic Blade there's no there's no downtime. You're just like playing and making choices and rolling dice and and shouting for joy or cursing the heavens like it's it's a nonstop and, uh, and I designed it to be that way. But I also come from, I mentioned before that I played a lot of War Machine. And so I really do care about balance. That's and I great. really do care about about that stuff, um, making sure the game mechanics are, are serving a fun play experience where yep. you aren't just like trashing your opponent on a technicality or whatever. Um, so I take it really seriously, balance. Um, but may I might define it differently than other people think about it, I How guess. So? Um, I mean, I definitely think balance should be the thing that makes the game fun for both players. Like, that's what's balanced. Not that, not that it's one thing, no, nothing is too strong or nothing is too good. Uh, you know, you want people to have choices that they love and choices that they hate. And choices that, you know, you want a good spread of fun. It's not just everything should be neutral. But you also want... So like a balance of experience? Is that where we're headed? When I'm doing something that's really powerful, I still want you to have fun. You know? And so if the thing is so powerful that it's taking away your fun, or the thing is a power 
or skill or ability that's taking away your fun, that doesn't really belong in the game for, or in my game. Yeah. So I, I know that like magic players that play blue would say, no, taking away your fun is my fun. <laughs> but like that's different in Relic Blade. Like we, we try to make sure that it stays active and exciting for both of the players, even if something's strong, like there should be strong choices. Um, but, but yeah, I, and also I think that the, the style of playing a narrative game like Relic Blade, an adventure game, if you find a combo that's like really, really strong, like, oh, if I take 12 goblins and I stick them this way and I give them this tactic and I, and I'm popping up and making life terrible for you, like you can do that. But I mean, maybe you'll play three games that way. And then the fourth game, you'll be like, but what happens if I add a squid? And then what happens if I... And, you know, and so I think the way the game is actually rewards you exploring the world... That's cool. ...makes it so that it's not as much about, like, showing up on game night, always playing your your 12, 12 goblin list and just, like, trashing people. Like, that, it's not that type of game. So that in that way, balance, yes, there are things that are strong... But also, it's not a competitive game. So, like, you you know, I mean, if you played Guild Ball, you know that, like, you can have, like, a list that you know how to play and you try and win. And that's it. But Relic Blade is more about you have a, characters that you really think are neat. Neat. And an adventure that's going to be exciting. And, the, and even if your character slips and falls into lava and is dead forever, like, there, that will have been such a crazy fun story that that's Relic Blade. Right. Um, so it's that's, less about like alpha gaming. That's cool. The one thing I want to drill into a little bit though, if you, mm-hmm. if you will with me, Sean, cause it was very interesting to me is the concept of, I don't want to make something that's not fun for the opponent. Right. And yeah. I'd be curious to know, can you think of a recent change you made or something that you created and you said, you know what, this, this violates that rule that this is this is creating a negative play experience for the other person i, I want to understand that a little bit better because i found that really interesting yeah i had a character that um they were shrimps that had harpoons and uh and they could deploy out of little like holes mud holes on the battlefield. This is amazing. And you, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> this is a good example of what Relic Blade so can cool. be also. So if you build your list for it, you could end up having mud holes all over the battlefield. And then anytime your opponent moves within range of one of those holes, you could proc and pop a, pop a shrimp out of it. Um, then those shrimps also had a, an ability that made it so they could ambush guys. Uh-huh. So it was, it was too many things that happened on your opponent's turn. Right. And that interrupted the flow of play. So even though conceptually, shrimps that are bursting out of the ground at random times, and every time you move, you're, thro- you're getting harpoons thrown at you, the Relic Blade engine was robust enough that that just meant when my bounty hunter, my grim bounty hunter stalking these ruins would activate, I would dodge first so that it represented her cautiously moving. After I dodged, then they could should they could ambush her, but she was in a defensive stance. So as a player, all I had to do was be like, oh, this is dangerous. There are mud holes everywhere. There are shrimps everywhere. So I'm being cautious and I advance cautiously. 
So I, I love that. I love that there's so much story going on there. There's so much. And then I was, as a player, able to just be like, all right, my bounty hunter, dodge, first thing, dodge. And then my opponent's like, dang it. <laughs> okay, fine. Well, I pop out anyways and attack you. I'm like, all right, I dodged. Um, but the flow of the game was interrupted too much. And so even though I loved the idea, I loved the way it played, it just was not serving the play style of the game. The game was becoming too reactive at that point. And so I ended up just being like, all right, shrimps don't ambush. They can pop out of holes, which is hilarious, but they aren't going to be ambushing. And then that it's one interruption instead of two that turns into eight in the middle of one round. So, And you still tell the story, yeah. right? You still get that yeah. feel. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. So um, whenever someone talks to me about a new game or I try to sell somebody on a game, you know, one of the first things I try to do is say, hey, if you like this game, if you like that game, you're you're going to like this game. So I'd be curious to know in Relic Blade, what's familiar to people? What are what are some games out there that they're already playing that they would find familiar uh, in Relic Blade? Yeah, I. Um, I think that. Depending on, I have to, I always have to read like how many games someone has played because I mean, there are people that have played way more games than me and people have played a lot less. Um, it, the list building and upgrade system is similar to X-Wing. So that's nice um, because that's a really cool system. I really love it. Obviously, I love it enough that I'm like, I integrate that same sort of principles into my own game. Um, but then... Playstyle-wise, it's like being able to control a whole party of D&D characters. And so that's like the core of the game is like D&D is fun, even if you're spending 20 minutes waiting for your turn to swing an axe. But if you get to control the whole team, <laughs> then that's way more up my speed, like wanting to play a tactical game. So maybe it's more like a, a video game where you do that, you know, like uh, Final Fantasy Tactics or Baldur's Gate or something where you're like really controlling a party of characters. Well, and you gave a little bit of that MMO language when you're talking about, you know, the interactions between the characters, how you've got yeah. the tank and the buff and stuff like that. And that's that's straight out of, you know, a World of Warcraft type type thing, which is that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Right. That's that's really cool and gives people kind of that touchstone to work from um, to better understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's like a it's like a turn based World of Warcraft war band real time skirmish RPG pushing <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, MOBA wait no it's not MOBA uh, roguelike big um, graphics so before we uh, uh, break off for one more segment the, the other thing that we've hinted at is it's my understanding Sean this is a, as close to a one man show as possible does that sound accurate yeah you know I work with other creative people when I can um, but for the most part, yeah, I do all the illustration, sculpture, game design. I, I've been the last three weeks or months, actually, three months, I've just mainly been packing figurines into boxes and shipping them all over the world. So, um, yeah, it's very one man show. I work a lot with Malev Shinobi. He's a uh, rapper and painter. And now game designer, I've been forcing him to do more and more Relic Blade game design for me. Uh, or by force, I mean hiring him to do more. And uh, and I also work with guest artists sometimes, but it's really more about just like collaborating. Um, less about like, well, whatever. I, I like to collaborate and I like to like get artists that I like to design stuff and do art for 
the game and then I sculpt them and it's a whole fun thing. And is that something that you're just now getting comfortable with? I guess what I'm trying to say, because I've I've talked to people that are, quote unquote, one man show. And it's because that's where they're happiest. Right. They like mm-hmm. they like that. I'm the one doing all of this. It's under my control. And it's not being a control type thing. It's like their happy place. And I get to design yeah. today and tomorrow I get to sculpt and things like that. Um, I, I'm trying to get a sense of of it, what drives the current model that you're working in. Yeah, I really, I mean, I, I love doing all the different things. And so that is a big part of it. Um, I am growing into writing more games. And as I'm writing more games, I can see those other games becoming, you know, reaching out to other sculptors or other artists for. Um, my latest new game is called Sludge and I'm working with Black Sight Studios to do the production end. Very so nice. Basically, they do good work. I, I, I still do all the art and game design and sculpture, but I just but I just send the sculpture files to them and then they put them in production. So I don't have to actually be the one taking the little figures and putting them in baggies and <laughs> and putting labels on shipping boxes, you know. So they're they're helping me out for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's great. Um I've only had good experience with them. In fact, I've heard that their um their horror game uh that mm. they have, the Friday yeah, 13th. I just pre-ordered game. the new the new edition. I've heard it's a good that. game. Uh, I haven't had a chance mm-hmm. to play it, but I'm hearing good things about it. Um and then their yeah, train it's is actually Don't look back. Don't look back. Don't look back. And so people should go and pre-order it. Yeah. It's, it, it seems like a very interesting concept. Very interesting yeah. concept. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, not to nerd out, but like, it seems like something you could play with people who don't normally play miniature games. So like, yeah, because it's all cooperative and very like thematic, you could have a, a date night, <laughs> you know, have your, have your wife and your friend and his wife, and you'd all be like surviving a horror. And scenario. they know the touchstones. They've all seen the yeah, movies and everything. Than, yeah. And a good entry point, And it's not as crazy as being like, okay, no, make a 500 <laughs> point list of high elves. No, I swear this is going to be fun in six hours. <laughs> you can't hire <laughs> a paladin. <laughs> and I'm saying that in a funny voice, but those are things I've said right. to my wife. So <laughs> yeah, we're, we're being fun at ourselves. Here. Yeah. <laughs> That's really fun. We have been those people. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, guys, let's take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk uh, about two things. I want to talk about kind of the future of not only Relic Blade, but what else? Uh, sludge and things like that coming around the corner. And I want to get a sense of uh, Sean's take on where we are as an industry and as a hobby. We'll be right back. Are you a tabletop RPG player that is considering becoming a game master? Are you a veteran GM that is always looking for different ways to improve your games? GM Mastermind is an RPG podcast that tackles topics catering to the art of game mastering. But Craig, there are a lot of RPG podcasts that do that. Perhaps. The GM Mastermind has the brain trust. It's a guest panel made up of two to three game masters from different backgrounds and experiences that share their personal insights on a particular topic. This keeps the conversation fresh, diverse, and insightful from one episode to the next. So head over to gmmastermind.com or subscribe to GM Mastermind wherever you find your favorite podcasts.
I'm not quite sure where to start on this because you've kind of tipped off a little bit. So you tell me, Sean, what would you like to talk about as far as what's out now, what's coming around the corner? What's it? What are you excited yeah, about? So the the most exciting thing is the new Storms of Corral box set for Relic Blade. And it's a campaign box and it has two full-size warbands, has a campaign book with lore and missions and and it's all contained. So it's all new content, which makes it so that if you already have Relic Blade, there's no doubles. You don't get nice. any repeat equipment or characters. And uh, And if you just have that, it's everything you need to be able to play. So it's very carefully designed where there are eight characters to represent the eight main factions of the game. All of it is like, I I spent so much time making sure the Wilderkin character fits, represents the Wilderkin really well. And also if you have the Wilderkin faction set, then she slots into that set perfectly and fills gaps that are missing in that set. And so there are eight characters that fulfill specific roles in eight factions, but also fulfill specific roles in the party that they're part of and upgrades that change old products to make them really exciting and upgrades that, you know, uh, pave the future of Relic Blade. So it's very, very good set. Um, uh, I'm super, super excited about it. So we've got models in there. We've got upgrade cards in there. Um, Rules. Is that something Mm -hmm. we get online? Is that in the box? Yeah. So it has the, it has like a quick start guide in the box and then it has all all the like campaign adventure information and like narrative stuff and also the missions and and relics and quests. So um, the core rules are in the Seeker's Handbook and that's a hardcover uh, book that I have available as a PDF or a book on my website. And if um, let's talk quickly, you mentioned it played on a two by two board. Um, roughly, what, how much terrain are we talking about that makes for a good game of Relic Blade? You don't need necessarily need a ton. OK, but because it is adventure oriented, a more dynamic board than you'd use in other games is is really good. And also making sure on a two by two, there isn't room for like dead space. Um, like in in a big war game, you might have a swamp and the point is that you can't walk there in Relic Blade. That doesn't serve a purpose. So almost every, every surface should be climbable and walkable and nice ramps and, and everything. So it's very. But uh, building a cool temple or castle with a lava moat or whatever uh, dream project you have becomes very doable on a two by two. Exactly. So yeah. that's that's part of the fun of it. And uh, and we mentioned Black Sight Studio. They worked or I, I worked with them. They worked with me and we really carefully designed like the perfect relic blade set of terrain. And so you can also get if you want to know, like if the game designer set up my table, what would it be like? And that that's it. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And you get that. It's funny you say that because you get that question all the time, right? Like, what well, is mm-hmm. this the right amount of terrain? And what is that? And you now have created a reference point where you say, I made yeah. this board. <laughs> this is what yeah, I would exactly. play on. I made this board. And if even if you can't get that terrain set, right. you know how how to build what types of what, you know. Now, you, you've hinted at it, and I don't know if we can talk about it, but what is what is non-Relic Blade coming? Oh, um, yeah. So I, I am one of the... Um, contributors on a game anthology called blaster yeah and that's with mike hutchinson yep. and ash barker yeah both ash and, and mike Joseph have been on the McCullough show and joe mcguire joe yep. mcguire so um 
we all work together. We make different, like exciting things. And, and probably like the behind the scenes, most exciting thing about it is that as game designers, we get together almost every week and like, and like daydream and, and bounce ideas off each other and like get excited. And so it's producing tons of really cool stuff. The first two volumes well, by, by the time this is out, the first three volumes will be out. And there's just tons of, you know, Frostgrave content, Gaslands content, <laughs> a Billion Suns, Gamma Wolves, Relic Blade, uh, a, a full blaster original called Mystic Skies that I made with Mike Hutchinson. That's so cool. And uh, and I wrote a war game rule set called Sludge that's going to be in there. And it's a Doom fantasy, uh, like a historical war game. So you use historical miniatures, but you assemble them in a, a non historical way which is fun for me because i love history but like i don't necessarily want to worry about like whether i painted the buttons the right color on a guy's yeah. jacket yeah that's that seems legitimate um so i've talked to ash about blaster and i've talked to mike about blaster oh and great so you guys know yeah it. um and uh one of the things that i asked both of them that i would like to ask you is what blaster is given back um so one of the things that we talked about with them is what have they learned by being a part of this cabal that you guys have put together i'd be curious for you sean um what is pre-blaster sean didn't know that sean knows now well i think pre-blaster i made i was the maker of relic blade and uh and relic blade in a lot of ways is enough work that i am and will continue being the like creative force of relic blade right um and it's good to have a project like that but it also means that with blaster i have the chance to do weird stuff and uh, and it can tie into Relic Blade right. or not, and it can scratch a different itch. Like like Sludge is very horror oriented, yep. Um, and Relic Blade is not the place for horror. Uh, you know there can be scary monsters, but like you aren't going to be like freaked out because your guts are spilling. Yeah. In in Sludge, there will be trauma. In Relic Blade, no one is traumatized by what happens. It's all <laughs> if you're into body horror, we're going to play Sludge. <laughs> so yeah. So. Um, <laughs> Anyways, like ju- that's just an example, but I think for me it's been like a really fun way to be part of a community of of peers and independent and because I'm inspired and driven to do better because I got to be associated with those guys, you know. So that's really fun. And I would imagine it's got to be it's got to be a a self-fulfilling buzz to mm-hmm. impress people that you admire right um and that's the one thing i keep hearing about this blaster cabal is how much you admire each other and and i would imagine if like if i was in a similar situation it'd be like i it means it means something to me like i want ash to go oh that's cool like that'd that'd Mm -hmm. make me feel good you know (laughs) another thing that's a that's like a uh a golden element of blaster is that um my friend greg does the graphic design and so, Which is gorgeous, by the way, for those you haven't looked at it. With not only are we pushed to like design better and make new exciting stuff, but it looks better than anything <laughs> we've ever made before. <laughs> and so, in a lot of ways, like with Sludge, I was like, "Well, I want to write another game. Like everyone else has multiple games. I want to write a game, and I want to write a war game, and I want to and I want to play with Perry miniatures." And so I like you know, ground out this like new rule set. But then it was always driven and spurred by knowing that Greg was going to design it. To illustrate the damn thing, yeah. And it looks 
amazing. It looks oh, terrific. Cool. It's really, really wonderful. So, like, that's another thing is I just, like, get to know him. We get to exploit Greg. We have a Greg to do. And you got to well, live up to you know, how good Greg is oh, going to make yeah. it look, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, you don't want to send him something that's not worth his time, right? That's and so cool. that's another thing. It's just all producing really high level stuff and it's funny because like it's a new thing for people to be buying a book that's at least five games in it yeah um, the business model but is very i think unique. we'll learn will people will learn and like they'll it will become a thing that they like know they want you yeah know? yeah so. That's very, very cool. Um, so, Sean, you've been around for a good bit. Uh, you've got visibility to the industry itself. Uh, one of the things that I always like to learn is what excites you about the hobby and the industry right now? Are there mm-hmm. things happening outside of your purview but that you're looking at and you go, that's cool, that's cool, that excites me? Yeah, this has been a funny year for that because all the cons that I normally would have gone yeah. to have been canceled. Um, but, like... I don't know, like 3D printing is kind of blowing my mind right now. Yeah. And and there's like this weird balance. I don't need, I don't know if I have a place to go with this. I'm just like sort of stunned by how many 3D printing Patreons there are that are producing pretty good miniatures, sometimes amazing miniatures. Right. But like with they're sort of like not founded on a game, except <laughs> like maybe D&D with like big air quotes. And so that's sort of like... I wonder, I just wonder where the, it, can it be sustainable to have like 20 new sculpts a month? Is it a bubble, right? Is it like, will, will, cause I can only back so many Patreons Yep. and then I can only 3d print a, t- a fraction of that. And I've got two high end printers yep. that I could have running all the time or I have three printers. I could be blasting out 3d prints, but how much can I paint? Yep. So anyways, I'm very interested to know like what's going to happen. Um, and it, and it sort of feels like it devalues what I do, except yeah. that I'm making stuff that I know, like I really understand form and volume and painting and the hobby, which is different than someone that is like knows how to 3D sculpt, you know, and make nice renders. So, so yeah, it's very complicated and I'm very excited and with trepidation. At the and same time. I don't know. I think it's, I think it can only be good. But also 3D printing is such a toxic pain to actually do yourself that I don't think it's going to replace buying a plastic kit. Like, I want to buy kits and glue them together. I don't want to, like, put on a respirator and gloves and yeah, clean it is, stuff for a day. I, I, I have people that are, that are banging on my door like, Craig, do you have a 3D printer? I'm like, no, I've, I've got mm-hmm. enough hobbies and I have yeah. talked to enough people that that's a brand new hobby. And, yeah. and that's a great thing. If that's what you love, then, then great. I would rather pay Sean to print it for me right um yeah that, and i only know how to do 3d printing because it's my job like right, otherwise i would not want to do it like it drives me crazy but uh yeah it's interesting so that's on my mind because i'm living in a in my inside in my own little bubble and then on top of that you know i'm being advertised all these patreons i'm like what is going on with tabletop <laughs> i don't know yeah but, it, um, now, how about, uh, have you had a chance to play games that you haven't designed? Is there any games that you've played in uh, the last year or so that you're like, oh, that's kind of a cool game? I've played fewer games than normal, but uh, but I played a ton of Dinosaur Island. 
Uh, I'm not familiar with Dinosaur. So that's it's a board game. It's like Jurassic Park themed. Yeah. Where each player builds their own theme park and the dino. You have to try and manage, manage, making sure your park's exciting, but not too dangerous. Because if people are always getting eaten, it leads (laughs) to problems. Anyways, my wife and daughter like it. And we just have so much fun playing the game. It's really, really well designed. Um, And then... Uh, a Billion Sons yeah. uh, by Mike Hutchinson's really, like, I'm I think, genre-defining. It's like a totally new I'm hearing really game. good stuff. I'm really stoked on yeah. that. Yeah, he talked about um, it on our interview, and I've, yeah. I've got gamers out there that I trust, and every single one of them is talking about that game. Yeah, yeah, and and whether that game is the game that, like, we play are playing in 10 years or not, in 10 years, we'll all be playing games that were influenced by it, in my opinion. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, gonna, it's a big deal, I think. Um, and, and then also just being like sort of stoked for Stargrave because yeah. it's like a fun reason to like play with some sci-fi models that I haven't been messing with for a while. So those are, I think, the things I've been messing with lately is Stargrave, A Billion Suns. He's on my hit list. I haven't had a chance to reach out to him. I'm going to try to talk him on to, uh, to talk him on to the show because Frostgrave, yeah, oh, Fr- yeah. Frost yeah. is Frostgrave is another game that, um, again, people that I trust um, keep talking about. Um, and it's funny how what a small circle uh, all of it oh, yeah. is. It sounds like I'm hunting the Blaster people. What it sounds oh like. yeah, I'm talking about it's because I'm <laughs> with Blaster. I just like they're the they're the only people I hang out with. for the last year and a half (laughs) those guys in Malev and that's that's funny um well sean um obviously i'm going to link to the the website um where people can go and to get the game and learn more about the game is there anything else that i should put in the show notes any other place that people can get more sean oh yeah so uh i do my instagram uh sean sutter art and the Relic Blade group on Facebook's really active. Perfect. There's a sludge group also, and you can find that through, yeah, Facebook and and Instagram, I guess. And like, and if you follow Sean Sutter on Kickstarter, then you'll know next time I launch a weird project making toys. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, we've mm-hmm. got links to all of that in the show notes. Uh, Sean, yeah, I really good. appreciate you making the time, my friend. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm stuck. Okay, great. And for those of you that stuck around to the end, listening, I appreciate you too. Take care. episode subscribe to tabletop talk and share it with your friends check out our content on youtube and twitch follow us on twitter and facebook and stay updated on everything coming from third floor all the links are in the show notes take care floor heads Um, so I'm not quite sure where to shart. Uh, shart. Let's try that intro again. So <laughs> we'll it's a little bit different. I'm sorry. I don't know how to shart, Sean. Um, it's off topic. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. So the idea here is I figure uh, let's do just a quick overview um, sure. conceptually. Yeah. And then um, we're not going to teach people how to play Relic Blade. You don't want to do yeah. that. Um, but what, it, what, what makes it stand out? Um, and the way I try to break it down is decision points. Mm-hmm. Um, but more importantly, let's just talk about your game. Yeah, okay. Does that sound cool. good? Yeah, that's easy. Great.
You're familiar with it? <laughs> I actually I played it recently, which was you're really, really good. <laughs> I hear it's a good game. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll bring us back. That was perfect, my friend. Thank you. How you feeling? All right? Yeah, good. Good. I accidentally got a burp in me from my cider. <laughs> That's <laughs> trust me. I've edited a few of my burps as well. So. Oh yeah. <laughs> I clicked on an old YouTube video of mine recently and and like skipped ahead just to see what I was talking about, and there was like this <laughs> stifling a burp like right in the middle. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> You, slow, you slowly start turning yeah, colors. Yeah. <laughs> you try not to burp. That's funny. <laughs> I've had I've had interviews where I've had to pee really bad. I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, I'll bring us back. Uh, oh, hey, are you still here? Wow. Um. Well, the episode is over, but if you're bored. Why not go to Patreon.com and support the show for as little as a dollar a month? Yeah, you can just scroll down. Scroll down and, yeah, get the link. It's Patreon that makes this and all of our other content possible. Don't you want to join the other floorheads on the Patreon Discord? Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Take care. Bye.